Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590 of the Fan, Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy. Pitchers and catchers officially report on Thursday. First spring training game is what, a week from uh, Saturday? Mm-hmm. Against the Pittsburgh Pirates. Calling that game on Sportsnet 590 the Fan will be Ben Wagner, voice of the Blue Jays on Sportsnet 590 the Fan, and uh, Dunedin, Florida resident. He joins us now. How's it going, Ben? It's a little chilly today. Oh, bummer. Sorry, man. Yeah. It's really We're nice here. It at 16. Yeah. We're checking it at 16 today. Wow. Like the separation is, I think, fewer than 10 <laughs> degrees between there and here. No? It's three degrees here right now. Well, okay. But yeah, this oh. afternoon was beautiful. It was sunny. Come on. It didn't get, we, did, we didn't hit like six or seven today. I don't know what we hit earlier. I can only tell you what's happening All now. Right. I live in the moment. <laughs> I, I wanted to make my, my first radio interview from Dunedin with a shot across the bow mm. right <laughs> at the temperatures. Uh, for uh, for the first time talking with you guys. Yeah, well, but, it, we, but it's great. It feels warm. Yeah, we appreciate it. This is the first normal spring training since 2019, unless you want to include like the first week of the 2020 spring training experience, where everybody then had to depart very quickly. Um, what what is the the attitude? Because I know pitchers and catchers report on Thursday, but the, today felt like the first day of spring training, really. It really did feel like the first day of spring training and with pitchers and catchers reporting officially in the middle of the week and then full squad workouts, not even until the next week, you wouldn't know it in Blue Jays land. Everybody pretty much had arrived early. There's a crop of pitchers that have been here for three weeks and getting cranked up. And I was talking with Buck Martinez behind what they call the 10 pack and that's 10 consecutive mounds in a row. And we were watching Jordan Romano throw today. We were watching Yusei Kikuchi throw today um, and a host of other guys. And Buck's like, man, you know, they throw hard right away, right out of the gate. So this is certainly by design. The Blue Jays are not the exception in this. Guys are just don't take that much time off in the offseason. And that's also a credit to the workout regimens that the pitchers put in. The players were here. There's only a handful of guys that I didn't see today. A couple of the new ones, but most of the new guys are here. Didn't see Matt Chapman, Brandon Belt. Um, just going through the, the, the handshake line that I was mm-hmm. doing earlier today. So there's just a couple of guys that aren't here yet, but they're coming in the next 48 hours. Um, Alejandro Kirk's another guy that, that's going to report in a couple of days. But again, um, you know they're not that far behind schedule of anything. In fact, the Blue Jays are more in tune to be ahead of schedule, which is really good news. As you alluded to, for the first time since 2019, it is a normal camp. There's no pandemic. There's uh, no worry about what is going to happen with Major League Baseball and where the Blue Jays are going to play. And then last year, of course, the delay was the collective bargaining agreement. So finally, and for the first time with this collection of Blue Jays, it is a normal spring training. And I got a very business-like feel from the Blue Jays getting to camp today. There were lots of hugs and how are you and all that kind of stuff happening. But once once they started to roll out and get on the field for activity, it, it seemed like it was pretty businesslike to me. So, Ben, uh, this next week or so until we have actual games, you know, for 
For fans, I think it's a lot of trying to glean anything you possibly can from social media. For example, you say Kikuchi has a beard now. Um, you know, George Springer's still resisting the urge to shave his head. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe Ben Wagner has a new look for this year, too. I'm curious. He does. Though, does he? He does. What are we talking? Oh. I have hair. All right. Yes, on top. Yeah, you'll, you'll see it. You'll see it on our first TV broadcast in a couple of weeks. Can't wait. Um, I am curious, though, at the risk of going a little too, like, inside baseball media, um, you're there now. Everyone has started to trickle in. Your first call isn't until next Saturday, the 25th. What does the next week and a half look like for you as you prep for the season? What is the, what is the day-to-day? What are you trying to find out before the actual games begin? This is the most important pocket of time for me for the whole entire season, being close to the ball club, being here every day, being present every day, one to watch what guys are doing, but also get to know all the new guys. There's a ton of research that we put in, in the hours and I'm not alone. The cohorts of media that are here as well. Hazel may is going to be reporting live starting this week. She'll be here for a couple of days. Shida Vitti from Sportsnet is right here as well. Buck and I are on the backfields all the time, marching around, um, trying to slip into places. We're not allowed to be at that time as well. And then talking with, talking with the players. For me, the number one emphasis is getting to know the players, reconnecting with the players. Uh, I had a really good conversation with Jose Barrios earlier today. Uh, I'm going to sit down with Yusei Kikuchi tomorrow because we noticed some new things. Uh, the, the change in the hands looked like he had a new pitch when we were watching him throw his bullpen. Uh, th- those are kind of the things, and not to get too deep into all of it, uh, but – those are the kind of things that I want to harness in these early days because it, it's incredible access. And now that I've been here a couple of years, there's a lot of familiarity and it's, it's really comfortable to just kind of loaf around and, and have some very casual conversations when guys are at the cage, guys are, you know, in between their, their throwing sessions. Uh, it's a very relaxed atmosphere. So you can get a ton of work done and you have to get a ton of work done because there's so many bodies. There's going to be like 60, 65 guys in camp. So uh, you just try to get to know them so you can get some good nuggets, find out what went well, what didn't, maybe what's a major point of emphasis getting into spring training and what's the workload going to look like. And also some priority guys. Uh, for a roster that is pretty set, there are still some questions you know, out there for some guys that are familiar names for Blue Jay fans the last couple of years. But also, what's that next wave of prospects that the Blue Jays really want to push out here and maybe get a little bit more exposure with the WBC, sending out some camps? So, uh, Bo Bichette took to, I don't know if it was a podium, he was in front of a microphone today. He, he spoke for the first time since signing the three-year deal with the Toronto Blue Jays, avoiding narrowly uh, an arbitration hearing this year and, and firming up his, his pay for the two years beyond this one, taking him right to free agency. I saw some, some smiles uh, from Bo, which you don't always see, but like, what, what was your takeaway from his about ten minutes of of media availability today? You know, you don't get a lot of personality from Bo one way or the other. He's just very even keel, and you mentioned his smile today was the first time that I thought he, you could see a little relief. You know, there weren't questions about uh, contract extension. There weren't questions about arbitration, and he even went and said. The system is flawed. There's, there's just no way. You, you believe in your team. You believe in the franchise. You believe a lot of players still to this day, and he said this, you dream about playing one place your entire career. 
and making your mark on a franchise. He alluded to a lot of that. And sometimes you just don't get that kind of personality or that depth from Bo. You know, he's very straight laced and, and to the point today, you could see some of the, the elation for him and the comfortability knowing that he's going to have a spot and, Without question, the next three years, while it is in contract, there will be conversations about moving forward in the years to come. But I also think that there is some pressure that's relieved on whether or not shortstop is in question for Bo Bichette. And we had those conversations when Marcus Simeon came to the Blue Jays. Uh, last year, where there were some, some flaws defensively, and you wondered if the Blue Jays were going to contemplate, and, and they had the discussions about shifting him off a shortstop for a pocket of time, knowing Santiago Espinal is there and so sure-handed, and he's got the ability to play range. So I got the sense that today more than any, any time over the last couple of years that Bo felt relief in coming to work with one job, and that's do uh, what he can for the Toronto Blue Jays to help them win ball games. One of the things that Bo can do, obviously, and you alluded to it there, improve his play at shortstop. I think that's obviously going to be a focus for him, as it probably is every year. Um, the other thing I took from Bo's uh, presser, and John Schneider echoed this, and certainly Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins have e- echoed it at times during the offseason, is the attention to detail stuff. The, the every ball, every run, every defensive play, it all matters. And I'm curious, Ben, how will track the progress of that attitude because it's it's a tough thing where it's the absence of those mistakes that lets you know you're on the right path and you know it's pretty easy to just be like well they're not there so everything's fine um that being a major talking point heading into spring how do you think that manifests in terms of um what the day-to-day looks like for these guys or even what we see in the spring training games when they get going yeah the overarching word that i that i hear from john schneider a lot is accountability and that's where he took it a couple of steps further in his comments today, talking about those little things and making sure whether it's a drill, whether it's around a batting practice, whether it's a side session, it's all eventually going to matter. And we can go back to point at last season specifically on points that mattered in ball games where base running was flawed or defensively, the blue Jays didn't do something properly infield, outfield, wherever, uh, that those, those those little things manifest themselves to be big things at the end. And I think that's the point that they're trying to drive home. With a with a, I mean honestly, this is not a young group anymore. They're they're very aware. They've got their sea legs now playing in Major League Baseball. They're surrounded by a number of veterans, and that accountability that don't get too comfortable for too long is the theme of camp right away. And I think that's going to come from a very energetic coaching staff first and foremost, but also in games, I think the blue Jays are going to get a lot of reps. The regulars are going to get a lot of reps early on. So when the bell rings and the blue Jays go to St. Louis and have to probably dodge snowflakes on opening day, that they are ready and, and as comfortable as they can be for game activity. That's, that's kind of the, the tenor that I picked up over the last few hours of camp today. So this is John Schneider's first spring training, and I, I wonder what that what that means. Like, how how does a, a manager set the tone for spring training? Like, how different is it year over year 
whether you got a, a Charlie Montoya or a John Schneider. Like, how how does the manager impact you know the the day to day when it comes to spring training? I see a lot of energy from John Schneider and everything that he does. That's the that's the kind of imprint that I think every day he's going to come to the ballpark at 5 a.m., 6 a.m. when he's rolling in there. Um, and I've been around other major league camps too, you know, where you just see a lot of the coaches leaning on fungos. And there's some back background noise and conversation while players do their work. Th- this starts with John Schneider and the coaching staff. It's the constant communication, encouragement, and, you know, sometimes verbal cues, or maybe a guy makes a really good play on a turn, like at second base today when they're trying to f- figure out these new wonky oversized bases that they're working mm-hmm. around. Uh, or, or, or John Schneider, you know, behind the cage, chirping Vladdy for a little bit or laughing at Kevin Kiermeyer when he made the quip about being in group one with George Springer, Bo Bichette, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. KK was t- looking around at us. He's like, I'm in this group on day one. Are you kidding me? And, you know, the barbs go back and forth between those guys. That's really where you, you start to separate yourselves from the atmosphere of camps and other coaches. They may not be the wrong way it might not be the right way but this is definitely something that i've noticed in blue jays camp ben you mentioned the size of the bases uh, a little tongue-in-cheek but we did hear bobachette talk about being a little more aggressive on the base paths I- i'm curious with some of the rule changes uh we're headed toward with the larger bases even something like the jays changing their uh wall distances and heights and particularly with the change in rules around the shift um is this going to be maybe a more tactics oriented camp than we're, we're used to hearing about like it, it does feel like there are some strategic shifts that at least need to be explored i think it's going to be a season not not only a spring training i think that the one of the things the blue jays and Bo said he wanted already in his mind to be more aggressive with the way that the new rules are going to be you've got limits on how many times a pitcher can throw over that's going to be in the back of the mind um now Remember, this has been kind of an experiment the last couple of years in the minor leagues. So the Blue Jays have a lot of data on this. They've got coaches and players that are already familiar with this. So they've been tapped into to get their feedback on how to make it work. And also, is there kind of a back channel, you know, to get around, you know, some of these quirky new rules and manipulate the system a little bit? There's always going to be that. Uh, When you look at the season coming up, John wants to be a more aggressive manager. He, and now that he has a couple of more tools to do that, guys that have speed and can not only just steal a base, but be aggressive going from first to third, or maybe a ball in the gap that gets hung up in the corner. Now Luis Rivera has the challenge and maybe a little bit more freedom with the roster that he's got in front of him to take a wheel and try to get him the extra 90 feet. That's the kind of aggressiveness and brand that the Blue Jays want to have moving forward. And, and I think it's going to be a very, very exciting brand of baseball from day one. Uh, ben, can't wait to hear spring training baseball again a week from uh, Saturday. Thanks for doing this, man. You got it. Check in anytime. Sounds good. good. There's Ben Wagner, voice of the Blue Jays on Sportsnet 590. The fan, and he's been sitting in Dunedin for months and months and months waiting for everybody to come to him, and they finally have. Uh, also today was announced that, you know, along with the rule changes that are going into effect for this upcoming Major League Baseball season, a couple of things will be solidified, like the extra innings, uh, base runner, automatic base runner on second base, which is not a ghost runner. It's real. Zombie runner is my preferred term for yeah, it. The zomb- you died. Yeah. You got out, uh-huh. but you're allowed back. That's good. 
You should have before. to roll. You should have to run like a little slower to mm. just like play out the whole zombie thing. That's you know not bad. Uh, yeah, Zombie Runner is around for this year and for like forever. It forever. seems. Yeah, which I have. I actually don't know your extra innings Zombie Runner take. Like mine is that it's been great. Like I've really enjoyed it. There are people that are like ardently against it. I was dubious, I guess, when it when it was first brought up. I haven't had a problem with it. I would say I mildly dislike it. Mm. I think it drops you right into a slowed down version of play because there's already already a run around. Pitchers worried about the guy on base and they, they tend to operate a little slower. I know it's intended to speed up the extra innings as a whole mm. in the macro, but I do feel like you get dropped into a bit of a slower game right from the start of those innings we needed it when ba- when there was no offense in baseball maybe the shift killing the shift and and the pitch clock will increase offense and then we can get rid of it but yeah when when the the, the average batting average is like 230 or something mm-hmm. yeah i think it was necessary and i it, it'll be curious to see and uh, now that you mentioned that i wish i had the numbers handy it'd probably take me too long to look it up in the course of the sentence but um were shifts more aggressive in that part of the game because a little single poked into right field could end the game. Yeah. Uh, you know, with a, with a right-handed hitter going the opposite way, or did you have to get more conservative because the value of a single versus the value of a big inning changes significantly? Um, I don't know. I'll get used like I'm used to it at this point. It just is what it is. I, I think like I have a small hang up with, and this is this comes up in hockey as well, just regular season games being played differently than playoff games. But I don't think it matters all that much. Like I think I think if you've gone nine innings and you're tied, you don't really have like a leg to stand no. on complaining about. It. And there's no it's not worth doing like an OT loss or anything like no. that. It's just it is what it is. You you can't can't be having 18 inning games all the time. Uh, there are school nights and stuff like that. Well, and and to, to continue the comparison with hockey, yeah, the, the comparison would be to the shootout or I guess three on three, whatever. Uh, but the shootout, I think, is the thing that is most polarizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, three on three is awesome. Yeah. People don't like the shootout. I don't like the shootout. I like the shootout initially. But ultimately, there are so many playoff teams in hockey that, you know, okay, so you, it went to a shootout and it's not a real thing. And it, like, it doesn't matter. If, like, you're getting, you're missing the playoffs by a single point because you lost a shootout, you stink. Like, if you miss the playoffs in Major League Baseball now because you lost too many extra inning games, you stink. There's too many playoff teams. You stink. It's too bad. It, and hockey, I, I have two kind of extra issues with it. And one is I think it's taken away from international hockey where a shootout used to be such a cool and rare and special thing. Sure. And now we see it all the time. Uh, But two, hockey has, because of the OT loss point, artificially created games that are worth more than other games. Mm -hmm. Like if we go to overtime, there are three points available in that game versus two points available in a regulation game where this time of year, if you are playing a team in the other conference, if you all you cared about was maximizing your possible standings and limiting risk and stuff, it would make sense for the two teams in an opposite conference to sit there for 60 minutes and then just play the overtime. Like it doesn't, because then you have expanded it to be a three point game instead of a two point game. Everybody wins on average. Uh, So I don't like that element of it, but this is fine. It's like, like you said, if you are complaining about, well, all those times we didn't win the game in regulation. What if we could have won them more in the like more random extra innings? Okay. Well, yeah. Well, this is it. Win it in nine then. I also that safe. I was like, I I was looking back at just last year's uh, records in extra innings. And I was like, who benefited most? Like who had 
real leg up. Like, who figured out this scoring the base runner from second base a lot more? Like, just about everybody's 500. Like, there's a couple of teams Mm -hmm. who play in crappy divisions who play more games against bad teams. Like, Cleveland was 13-6 and in extra innings. Yeah, Yeah, that kind of tracks. Because what are you doing going to (laughs) extra innings with the Tigers and Royals 19 times? Because Cleveland's not that good. Yeah. Um, (laughs) The other thing is, and and again, I'd have to look at the numbers. I, I wonder if your home field advantage goes up because the... For sure. The runner on second, like... You know what you have to do. changes that value of, hey, you can play for a run or play for, where if you're at the top of the inning, you've got to play for a big inning because you don't know. Yep, 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 yep. No, and yeah, it's the only time that I will ever advocate for a sacrifice bunt when all you need is yes. one run to win the baseball game. So if, yeah, you don't score in the top half and you're the home team. And yeah, you, Although I would say, yeah, I'm still not bunting a guy from first to second in that scenario, no, but no, from no. Second, second to third, to third, third extra that, inning, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Uh, the other thing, if we can talk about it or not. Um, they've firmed up the rules even further when it comes to position players coming into the game to pitch. Now, the leading team has to be up by at least 10 in the ninth inning, or the trailing team is down by 8-plus any time, or the, go- the game goes into extra innings. Okay, fine. I, 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 don't, uh, I, don't, I don't see the novelty anymore in uh, position players pitching. The other thing before we, uh, we take a break here, what you I want don't to, get to comment on that? Well, I, I mentioned it, and I didn't. I don't know. It was kind of like minuscule thing. I, I didn't know if you had a comment on it. I I don't really. Oh, but <laughs> but okay. Here comes a comment. What about a scenario where a position player like actually can pitch? Well, I like think... Shohei obviously doesn't count. Yes. Let's say there's a scenario where whoever he's playing on this year, I want to say it's the it's Cleveland in the minors. Let's say. Because of whatever, Anthony Ghost starts a game in the outfield. Well, and that, then they want to use him as a lefty out of the bullpen because he is yeah. like both. Yeah, yeah, he is both. I mean, he can't hit. But, uh, yeah, no, I I think Major League Baseball would view him as the, the same way they would view a Shohei Otani. Yeah. I, 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 so where's the line? Because, like, Hanser Alberto <laughs> has made 12 pitching appearances in his career. Mm-hmm. Like, what? at what point? I think it's like pornography. You know it when you see it, okay? You know a pitcher when you see a pitcher. Tell you this, but if it's a catcher, that's cheating. Christian Bancourt, Sandy Leon, those guys. Even though Luke Maley throws a mean knuckleball, right? Like... Yeah, but only Luke Maley can catch his knuckleball. So how do you <laughs> how do you even do anything with that? Um, yeah, we're gonna have to call this like the Hanser Alberto line or, uh, or the Anthony Ghost line of just how much do you have to pitch to be considered a pitcher? Yeah, it would be great if like you were forced if you were like, hey, yeah, no, this guy Hanser Alberto is actually a pitcher. You're like, okay. Um, if to make that claim, he has to pitch every six days at least, yeah. like minimum. He has to pitch twenty <laughs> innings this year, yeah. or you have to send him the minors. Yeah. Yeah, and then I love. I also just it makes you appreciate even more that we're in an era where there we're creating more rules around this stuff, and it's just like Shohei's off to the side. It's like, right, nothing applies no, not to the, him. No, the freak. Yeah, no, the freak yeah. that can actually well, do it. It's and like it's the second year in a row that we've changed a rule for Shohei Otani. That's right. Or actually, sorry, last year was a rule that was for Shohei Otani, mm-hmm. and this is a rule that affects everyone but Shohei Otani. So, um, yeah, the rule of yeah, if you're the pitcher, you can stay in the game as the DH. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Uh, because we need more Shohei Otani, not, yes. not less. Maximum Shohei. <laughs> Last thing from the Bobuchet, um media availability today that I thought was, well, interesting and, and obvious in a way, but like having you dig into the numbers like ever so uh, quickly before the show, the Bobuchet mentioned his slow start 
last year and he's like, yeah, I faced like five lefties the entire month of April. Like, I was like, oh, is that true? So, so Bo Bichette, as we all know, had a real slow start to the season offensively. He OPS 535 in March and April. Now they only played 22 games because of the late start to the season. Um, and they rebounded a little bit in May and then absolutely exploded in September and October. And as we also know, Blue Jays had nothing but right-handed hitters. And in thinking about the diversification of this lineup this season and getting more lefties involved, my brain naturally went to, well, okay, so that's an overall, they're going to score more runs because the lefties will have an advantage over the the majority of the right-handed starting pitchers. Not thinking that also, like, there is an advantage to the righties that might face more lefties than they have previously because of either a, a, a team's more likelihood not to skip a lefty starter in a series or in the late innings having a reliever come in and face the minimum three batters and have a matchup against the lefty and then be forced into action against a Bobuchet or a righty. This team really, I mean, the, the right-handed hitters on this team really have not benefited from the platoon matchup at all last year especially. To the most extreme degree in the entirety of Major League Baseball. Yeah, Vlad and Bo were 1-2 in plate appearances righty on righty last year. Uh, and in the 170s and 180s for plate appearances as a righty against a lefty. One way to change that is, yeah, have... I mean, some of it's just going to be random and it'll balance out. Some of it, you have a couple extra lefties in the lineup. Maybe, like you said, you don't skip a lefty. The big thing, though, and this won't have changed, is you look at the top of the Jays' order. Is there a lefty hitting in that top three, four, five? Maybe five, but the... And this is why at last year's deadline, like, yes, obviously in a vacuum would have loved a left-handed hitter that changes the bench dynamic and stuff like that, but... In terms of the real value of those platoon splits is that lefty has to be good enough that you are making decisions difficult for the opposing manager. If you have George Springer, Bobachette, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. coming up one, two, three, and a lefty hitting ninth, that is not a difficult decision for a manager. Mm-hmm. You let that lefty hit against the righty because who cares it's kevin Kiermeyer say against the righty, and you much 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 prefer. Hard righty on righty for a Springer Bow Vlad than getting a lefty lefty for Kiermeyer and then getting into the the mismatch platoon heart of the order. Uh, on top of which, now the way the Jays bench looks right this second, maybe this isn't the case. But a lot of the times, if you go lefty lefty as a manager, um, those the team has a righty you could bring in off the bench. So whether it's even if it's Espinal or Merrifield or the second catcher that day, um, you can neutralize that in a way you can't really righty on righty because you're not taking Springer, Bo, Vlad, Kirk out of the lineup for a left-handed hitter just for the platoon advantage. So I still, I think the Jays are a little more versatile in that way, but I don't think they are versatile enough in terms of can you change a manager's thinking late in a game? Well, Dalton Varsha would have to get off to such an incredible start that like, yeah, you're debating throwing him in the top four here and breaking Mm -hmm. up Springer and Bo or, you know, somebody suffers an ill-timed injury and then you can mess with the top of the lineup. But yeah, like it's likely going to be... You know, four righties right out of the chute. Unless Brandon Belt is back to 2021 Brandon Belt, where he had like a 170 WRC plus against righties, and and he works his way into the middle of the order against a right-handed starter, maybe. Um, But he's also a guy that, unless he's much better than he was last year, you would probably pinch hit for lefty on lefty anyway. So, Mm -hmm. I don't know. It gets It's at least slightly more difficult for an opposing manager to make these decisions because the Jays do have more balance, um, but really it's the balance at the top of the order when you look at a, a Houston Astros 
say. So Alex Bregman led the league last year and how many plate appearances he got as a righty against the lefty. Mm-hmm. And it's because Jordan Alvarez is in there. Yuli Gurriel was also high on that ranking because, well, what's tougher? Do you want your lefty facing Alex Bregman or do you want a righty facing Jordan Alvarez? Mm-hmm. And you would take Bregman. <laughs> Bregman facing lefty. So those are the the kind of decision points an opposing manager faces. I don't they got slightly harder, but not extremely harder. No. And yeah, so again, just to to put a bow on the bow thing, he had nine plate appearances in March and April against lefties. He had twenty eight against lefties in September, in October. Now they played more games at the end of the season, like I, I mentioned. But yeah, just from a percentage standpoint, that's still significantly higher. And he did very well against left-handed pitching in September and October. He did very well against everybody, but yeah, the, it, it tracks. What he says tracks, and the idea that, man, even facing a few more lefties, like getting a few more knocks, getting a few more confident games under your belt, like early on in the season, um, is is super impactful. Just going from like dead last in Major League Baseball in platoon advantage to somewhere in the meaty middle, like right, that that's a huge, significant uh, change in outcome, I think. I would think so, yeah. And, you know, maybe there's noise in there over a small sample, but maybe there's not. Maybe things play out the way we'd expect um, over the course of a season. By the way, uh, thank you to Michael, who just tweeted in that there is actually a definition of two-way players. And I had thrown out 20 innings as just like a random number, but that is the that is the number. Nice. Um, so, yes, in the current or previous MLB season, you had to have pitched at least 20 major league innings and played at least 20 major league games as a position player or DH. So 20 innings and 20 games. What if you're a rookie though? Like how, what do they do? Like, and then, then so you can't get two way eligibility. I guess, really? According in, to this. In, in the season? Really? That's, that stinks. I mean, yeah, it's, I guess it's like fantasy position eligibility. <laughs> okay. Cause it says MLB season. All right. That's strange. All right. Learn something new every day. All right. When we come back, Toronto Maple Leafs split their home and home with the worst team in the national hockey league. And the head coach wasn't too pleased about it. In fact, um, they really not fared all that well against bad teams this season. And the Canadian women's soccer team is going to play in the She Believes Cup this week, which starts on Thursday against the United States. But they're doing so under protest. They're being forced into playing soccer games. We'll discuss what that could possibly look like coming up next as the fan drive time continues. Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Breaking down the top stories in hockey and Elliot Friedman every day. The Jeff Merrick Show. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan, Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy. And you were digging into some numbers. I know it killed you to talk about a thing and wishing you had the numbers right at your fingertips that, you know, you say something and then automatically the number appeared in front of you. It, it took a five-minute commercial break for you to, to to crunch those numbers when it comes to extra inning shifts. Sometimes I will try to do that while I'm talking or I'll kick it back to you and try to find something, but I wasn't a 1,000% sure if I'd be able to filter it this way and how long it would take me, but yes, I did it. So it was frustrating. Um, during regulation play, uh-huh. Innings one through nine. Uh-huh. Major League Baseball teams shifted, and this is just infield shifts because you can shift your outfield around however you want this year. Sure. Um, still. Uh, 33.9% of all pitches had a shifted infield behind it. It's in a ex- lot. It is. In <laughs> extra innings, dropped to 21%. 
Well, and I would say in an overall sense, oh, man, I should have had you do this before I asked you this question. Too late. Um, yeah, what were the numbers, innings one through nine, with runners on base? Because, right, like, like we're talking about extra innings, there's yeah. always a runner on base. And you always ship less when there's a runner on base mm-hmm. because somebody's got to cover the base at second base. And now I've upset you because now you realize you know. should have looked that up. No, I can. I mean, do you want it like uh, so? What anyone is, on base or just a runner on second? Ugh, I guess I just want a runner on second, right? Probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Up to you. Okay. <laughs> no, I think I just um, want runner on second base. <laughs> yeah, because we could even get into. You can even get into oh, the go ahead runs on base or the the time oh, runs on base. God. But then you get into uh, a lot of different stuff. <laughs> yeah, you're right because I should want tie game runner yes. on second base. Yeah, Although can... maybe I don't want that for the home team. Yeah, look, I think it's <laughs> it is helpful enough to know at a broad level that yes, the shift happens much less in those extra inning situations. So we will see the impact of the new shift rules. Less in uh-huh. extra. There will not be a multiplier Ooh. rule effect. All right. Okay. Nothing there that doesn't match the eye test or the feel test. Like yeah. I would say intuitively, I think they shift less in those situations. But it's nice to be able to look at the numbers and say yeah, that it's also factual. Yeah. I. You know what else passes the feel and the eye test is that the Leafs stink against bad teams. They're stinking against a lot of bad teams at the beginning of the season. That's why Sheldon Keefe found himself on the hot seat, and then they rattled off a bunch of wins and you kind of forgot about it. But, um, yeah, it kind of reared its ugly head because, okay, splitting back-to-backs isn't the worst thing in the world, but when you are playing the worst team in the world, like, it's not so great. Uh, as the Toronto Maple Leafs against bottom seven teams this season have a record of 4-4-3. and three. For comparison's sake, the Boston Bruins are 10-1-0 against those same bottom seven teams. Now, last year, in a season in which the Toronto Maple Leafs set the all-time franchise points mark for a season, 115. They killed bottom seven teams. 15, 4, and 1. And if I do recall, Sheldon Keefe, still the head coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs, and defensively weren't nearly as stout as they've played, despite the injuries this season. So my question to you, Blake, is what are we to make of the this season's tepid record against bad teams? I think part of it is if you tell a group of players for six, seven years that nothing matters until the playoffs and you'll only be measured how you perform against playoff teams. It kind of devalues the games against lesser teams. Now, early in the season, maybe it's just a little bit of a, you haven't hit the ground running or you underestimate some opponents or whatever. Um, This point in the season, there could be a little bit of, well, what does it really matter? Now the standings are getting tight enough that it does kind of matter. Uh, if you want home ice in that game seven in the first round, if you want to look ahead to future rounds, how you'd line up. Um, so there's a, there's a reason for that kind of thing to be important. I don't think there's a, a ton to it other than, yeah, it's a very good team that has been very good in the regular season and maybe has trouble getting up for games like that. Now I would say on Saturday, I was particularly disappointed because I thought they put Joe Wall in a really 
poor position. Like I yeah. thought they played a really poor defensive game around him. And He's not supposed to have to make 40 saves to win a hockey game against the Columbus Blue Jackets. Right. And like, there's the one where I think it was Kerfoot basically digs it out from wall, trying to cover it and yeah. puts it right on someone's <laughs> stick. Um, you know, a big rebound at one point that, that there wasn't coverage on. So, I mean, it's not the end of the world to lose that one. And I'm sure it's not the end of the world that, uh, Joe Wall put up only a 900 save percentage in, in his first game back up this year after such a strong Marley season. But I did think it was, you know, if you're going to find a reason to get up for games over the course of the year, this kid who hasn't played a game this year and, and he's getting a, a start and who's been so good at the HL level, like, yeah, that should be something you can rally behind and like, let's put this kid in a good situation. Let, let's help him get a W. Yeah, I, well, and my initial reaction is, my initial thought is to think the way you just expressed yourself that, yeah, you've been telling this team and the core that nothing outside of winning a playoff round and multiple rounds in a Stanley Cup matters. So why wouldn't they feel the way that they apparently feel this season when it comes to mediocre teams? And and secondarily to that, this team is so skillful that, yeah, you probably don't have to put forth a 100% effort to beat these teams most of the time. They almost beat the Columbus Blue Jackets on Saturday, despite the fact that it was a horrible, horrible effort. And they sleepwalked through Friday's game, which was 3 nothing, where it was just like Samsonov was yeah. really good, and they got a couple beautiful goals. And but, but what raises the red flag is that the head coach took major issue with it. Like, obviously, you know, he's got bullets to fire, decided to fire one after the game on Saturday with some real pointed remarks as far as the effort level with his team. And yeah, I mentioned that they beat up on the bad teams last year and it didn't work out for them. That was a coin flip series against the Tampa Bay Lightning who made the Stanley Cup final. So like, it's so difficult to talk about this team's failures in the postseason because they're all different. Like last year, and I we make fun of them getting the respect in the handshake line, which is a joke and like hilarious that anybody, including the head coach, mentioned that as a, a, a thing that he observed at the end of the series. But truly, losing to the Tampa Bay Lightning, having a series lead, and then going to overtime in a game six, and then, you know, narrowly losing in game seven, and like some calls maybe not going your way, and... And yada, yada, yada. And a team that eventually goes to yet another Stanley Cup final and loses is totally different than losing to the Columbus Blue Jackets in five games in a play-in scenario or beating the Montreal Canadiens by 25 points during the regular season and blowing a 3-1 series lead. But if I was a Leaf fan, and maybe this is just me putting, which I often do, putting my own thoughts into like the body of uh, William Nylander or Mitch Marner or an Austin Matthews, but I went through, like somebody told me, going into last season that, hey, the way you play through these 82 games, it creates habits and it's going to make you better in the postseason to never take your foot off the gas, to make sure you crush the lesser lights. And even if you are playing the Ottawa Senators on a Wednesday night, treat that like the Boston Bruins on a Saturday night. And they did that. And still the result was the same. Like, (laughs) I'd be even more emboldened to say, well, let's screw you. Okay, if, you, if we're talking about putting ourselves in the brains of players or what we would be like in these situations, you want to know what I what I think one of the motivators is? And this is like traditionalists will not like this. This is not a team-oriented way. But if you're really struggling to get your guys up uh, against poor teams, Columbus Blue Jackets allow almost four goals a game. You just got six over two games against them. This is, I, I have said this before, is like... Um, I 
played in Cambridge and not at like a crazy high level or anything, but we, there were certain opponents on the schedule where it's like, oh, that's where I'm getting my points. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, we're playing Flamborough. <laughs> this is six, seven <laughs> points. This, Flamborough. Is, this is how I'm, I'm padding <laughs> the stats for this year. Like if you're the skill players, if you're the guys that are in the top 20 in scoring, if you're a, a lower line guy who yeah. it's been, Hey, all year, you're checking line, checking line, checking line. We need you defensive. We need you like, this is your opportunity. If you can get up for this game, this is nice work. And then if you get up early, you can kind of play like you played Saturday in like the second and third period. If, if you come correct. Now, these are NHL players with millions of dollars online. I don't know that this would get through to them, mm-hmm. but that's how I always think of lesser opponents is like you, even if it's, you don't want to have to motivate people selfishly, but if it works, like whatever you use to motivate them for these two games didn't work because they didn't play particularly well. Yeah. I don't think they'll have a problem with the Columbus Blue Jackets in the postseason because they won't be there. And I would say that every time they face a team that is real good and maybe they don't get the goaltending, but like, yeah, the Bruins games, the three Bruins games, they, they've, they've shown up. What did you say their record was against the bottom seven teams this season? Yeah. Four, four and three. And the Bruins are 10 and 1. I, the, the other four, thing four is... 4 and 3. So that would mean they are 28, 10, and 5 against everyone else. Yeah, which... <laughs> yeah, that is the converse to it. Yeah. Uh, what would you rather... If you were <laughs> going to decide it's one or the other, and yeah, good teams don't decide. They just are good against everybody, like the Bruins, 10, 1 and 0, and also like a zillion, not very many, and a little bit against uh, the other teams as well. And by the way... Do the Bruins have like extra impetus to 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 have a great regular season? This is a core that's won. This is a core that a lot of it's going to the Hall of Fame. What do they care about beating up on the Columbus Blue Jackets? But they've done it, and they they just can't turn it off. That's it. Like there are certain guys on that team that just they don't have a gear down. Uh-huh. And I don't know. Like that seems like an exhausting way to play eighty two games in a sport like hockey. But also, it, like stay ready. You don't have to get ready. Yeah. If you are in that mode and you can handle the kind of mental and emotional rigors of always being that on, maybe there's something to it. But I, I also think these things are very team specific. Like, I don't think there is a, a catch all for teams last year, for example, with the Raptors. One of the things I'd look at when trying to figure out, well, is this fool's gold? Are these guys frauds and this is like a fake 48 win team which this year it looks like maybe last year's team was at least a little bit fake um one of the things i looked at is like well they keep playing extremely well against top teams Mm -hmm. like i think they were number four in net rating against top 10 teams last year yeah is that because they're good or is that because they're they were considered the Columbus Blue Jackets on the other mm. side of that and teams played down to them and now when we see the Raptors play down to teams like Utah and Detroit is that actually more their level and they just do a better job getting up for teams like Cleveland that they they want to prove something I don't know this is why I think it's very team specific like I think Boston this year being as good as they are against bad teams is a different thing than the Leafs being really good against them last year I think the Leafs were just an unbelievable regular season team last year um this Boston team I I think just has a a level that I don't know I I I watched that team in a couple out of market games this year and I don't know. It looks like they treat every possession like a playoff possession. Again, it's not how I would advise you manage 82 games probably, but it's working for them. And I think it's probably going to work in the playoffs. I would think so. I mean, I guess I wouldn't 
I, I would advise it. I don't know if I'd be capable of doing it, but yeah, I, I guess I guess I would advise it. I don't it. think it's a reasonable thing, and yeah. I, I don't think it's a. And like this is the other thing you mentioned. Keith only has so many bullets, right? If you try to coach a team for eighty-two games, like the, it's the playoffs, and then you get to the playoffs, what do you? What is your move, right? Like, what is the thing you can go to to make? It more dramatic. Yeah, you can't put hot sauce on hot sauce. <laughs> well, you can. It's just more hot sauce, but yeah. but it doesn't change the spice level. It just makes it wetter. <laughs> I, I ate. I had hot wings on the weekend. <laughs> Fresh of mind. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I would say that it's not necessarily indicative of anything, but again, the Leafs bow out in the playoffs. Like all of your narratives are valid, right? Like, yeah. If they, if they do it again, you can be like, ah, this team didn't care and. As Justin Bourne was fond of saying, like, it's the smart kid in class that, yeah, they know they can pass the exam or think they can. They don't need to do the homework, but okay, we'll see. I don't know if they've built up the equity, but again, doesn't matter. If they if they win a first-round series against the Tampa Bay Lightning, all our conversations about them uh, are irrelevant. I don't know, though. What? I think, like, I know that that's the hurdle right now. Heading into such a serious offseason with question marks around the GM and his contract status, potentially the head coach, potentially starting to talk extension with certain stars. I don't know that just winning one series is, is going to be enough to take that narrative weight off and take like the reality of some of the decision. Like, I know it's not fair to be like, well, go from knock a first round knockout to the Stanley cup. And Boston is obviously extremely good, but I don't know that one series win alleviates that all that much at this point. It might not. Like, I, I kind of got to see it to to make a, mm-hmm. an assessment of that. Because, yeah, like, say they really look like the better team in a series against the Lightning and they win that series. And then they go seven against this juggernaut Bruins team and it's like quintuple overtime in game seven. Like, I don't know. <laughs> also, there's a, a rule that I was digging around in the NHL rule book and I... Uh, found out and i i don't know if the toronto maple leafs are aware of this but there's no rule that says you have to go to a game seven yeah you could just no, win true. the series earlier yeah. than that you're allowed to do that buddy yeah they were an overtime away from doing that a season ago again like last year it, it should be in a different bucket leafs were good 115 point team did the job they were asked to do during the regular season put themselves in position to win a series against an eventual Eastern Conference champion, and yeah, maybe the Game Seven, you know, performance wasn't their absolute best, and could have used some more goals for sure. But yeah, they were right there, came back all the way to force the overtime Game Six. Anyways, I have a hockey question for you. Okay, what? Do we have more that we have to get to in this last? No. no. What do you think of the amount of healthy scratching that's been going on here so far out from the deadline? Like Ryan O'Reilly didn't play for like a month, yeah, and then Chikrin's going to miss his his second game in a row tonight as a healthy scratch. I understand if something's imminent. I understand the week of the trade deadline, but we're like still a couple weeks away. I don't know. I, I can't remember it ever being this aggressive in no. any sport. No. And the Bo Horvat thing like seemed to just spur all of this that we are, this is a sport generally. I mean, it's why, you know, all the sports networks have uh, dedicated television programming surrounding the deadline on March 3rd. Tune in here. Yeah. And, and there will be stuff that happens, but it is, it, it is, really weird like when you see stuff like chicken and i know you're you're talking about multiple games and it it not actually being imminent it must be so close and like so right at the goal line that you're in the case of chicken who's under contract beyond this year you're talking about the salary retention and it's like a third mm-hmm. team being involved or it's an o'reilly thing 
where you're talking about extensions, right? Like that you're having conversations with his representatives. Do you want to pay a Ryan O'Reilly asking? And I know it's Ryan O'Reilly. He could jump in and play playoff hockey right now, I'm sure. But a guy who took five weeks off, like drop him right back in? I I think what you'd like to see, well, is is him be healthy for for a long period of time, which Mm -hmm. you haven't seen. But yeah, you would you would like to be able to integrate him as much as you can during the regular season as well. Yeah, it's it's really really strange because it's not it's not a situation like we had with Patrick Kane where he's got a decision to make and it's a, a no move clause and and there's a there's a conversation around that. Ryan O'Reilly's just a pending free agent. Jacob Chikrin, he's a young good player who we've heard on the trade block for multiple multiple weeks and yeah, you know, what, you know what a funny thing is, um, and I, I never really clued into this until right now, but if someone has a no-move clause and they're going to be used in a move where there's salary retention, mm-hmm. um, like they kind of implicitly have to waive their no-move clause for the third team, right? Because yeah. they get traded there, salary retained, traded somewhere else. I know they can structure it as a three-team deal, but it is kind of funny. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's very weird and bizarre but yeah apparently the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs not one of the teams that are involved in the Chikrin deal neither are the Edmonton Oilers and the Kings keep being the the team that's bandied about as uh the one that's going to pull the trigger on that thing I haven't heard the same about Ryan O'Reilly who seems like he fits a need but it does feel like a lot like the Felino move potentially when you're talking about a guy with health concerns who's a little aged long in the tooth who has, you know, those intangible things. I mean, Ryan O'Reilly has the playoff pedigree mm-hmm. as well, but a guy that's clearly, well, before he got injured, looked like he was in decline. Yeah, he's he's solid enough and, like, in the Selkie conversation every year enough that the th- the issue for him with me is if he is adamant that he gets an extension, that's a harder one because he just turned 32. But mm-hmm. if you're just talking about, like, I, I think he's pretty plug-and-play on a, on a playoff roster. Yeah. Uh, yeah, play up the middle or on the wing. All right, time now for Last Call, brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. How about uh, Super Bowl futures? Mm. 2024 uh, Super Bowl champion, Chiefs favorite, plus 600. Bills and Eagles, both plus 700. Yeah, some free agent concerns when it comes to the Bills. All right, Stanley Cup futures. Boston Bruins of favors, uh, favorites at plus 500. Avalanche, plus 600. Hurricanes, plus 800. The Toronto Maple Leafs, fourth favorite, at plus 1,100, and the NBA championship futures have the Celtics plus 340, Phoenix Suns plus 450, Kevin Durant on the uh, court practicing with the Suns Mm. today, Milwaukee Bucks plus 500, Denver Nuggets plus 600, and that was Last Call, brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. Blake, you're not with me tomorrow. You are down at the arena for Raptors Magic in a must-lose game for the Raptors. We'll see you back on Wednesday. Thanks, man. A little right. Valentine's Day. Two teams that can't get enough of each other, Raptors and the Magic. See you then. Bye.